Brought to you by Bank of America, Merrill Lynch. With virtual reality, virtually everything will change. Discover opportunities in a transforming world. B of slash VR. Merrill Lynch, Pierce, Fenner & Smith, Incorporated. Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen with David Gura. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on iTunes, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. Pleasure to be joined in our studios today by Bob Nardelli, founder and CEO of XLR8, and of course, former chairman and CEO of Chrysler, and former chairman and CEO of Home Depot. Great to see you once again here. And let me start with uh, with healthcare. What's going on in Washington D.C.? The degree to which uh, you're following it, we're kind of watching to see what happens here as we push ahead uh, to Friday. What do you make of how this process uh, is unfolding and and the the way that healthcare has been prioritized uh, in Washington? Well, I, th- I think number one, uh, it's it's extremely disappointing that uh, we keep watering this thing down to the point where the objective now is to get a yay vote on something, regardless of what it is. You know, we've gone through this whole cycle, and you know, we we're talking about now, now the adjective, it's a skinny uh-huh. uh, version. You know, it's, it's just very disappointing, certainly to, I think, the, the, the entire population to see the lack of, of, of uh, success and cooperation on the Hill. I, I think it's... Uh, we're reaching a point here that of, of unprecedented level of disagreement and and political infighting that's uh, disappointing to you know the average working man and woman in this country. Does DC seem different to you uh, from from your perspective as a as a corporate executive? Is what's happening there radically different from what we've seen here over the last few decades? Yeah, I think for me, you know, I mentioned earlier with Tom is you know I've been around for 45, 46 years now and. And uh, it seems this has reached a, a crescendo, mm. a, a crescendo of, of it's as worse as it's ever been, I think, relative to, again, the partisanship and the lack of success. It's uh, it's really disappointing. And, you know, I don't call August, you know, I shouldn't call it a recess. It's a vacation. <laughs> I think these guys got to stay there and start working for a living and working for the people that put them in office. You, you've, you've led companies. I, I wonder what you make of, of leadership in the context of, of government. Uh, where should that come from? Do you see examples of it in Washington, D.C. Uh, today? Where could you see more of it? Where do we need to see more of it? Yeah. Well, I think what we see is a lot of uh, decisions being made focused on individual reelection and uh, really playing to the partisanship out there versus, you know, getting the job done. It's not a matter of how many terms you can run. It's a matter of are you really you know, executing the will of the people that put you into office and making those bold and courageous decisions. I I just don't see the same intensity, the same passion, the same commitment that you see in corporate America in Washington today. I look at where there there has been success or there has been a lot of focus over these last six months, and it seems like apprenticeships is is one part of it. You had a lot of corporate executives coming to the White House, talking about it with the president, members of his staff, uh, his daughter and advisor certainly talking about it a lot uh, as well. You come from GE, where that's incredibly important to to the culture of the company. Why has it been so difficult for U.S. corporations to adopt apprenticeship programs or training programs to make that so uh, woven into the fabric of the way those companies are run? Yeah. Well, I think we're starting to see that. Uh, you know, I was with uh, Randall Stevenson, uh, the chairman and CEO of AT&T, and, and here's a leader that, you know, stops whining about we don't have talent to hire 
and is investing a couple of pennies a share to make sure that he does have the talent coming into that company. And I think we're going to see more and more of that. I, I think we've got yeah. to see a better connection between university and corporations to make sure yeah. that the core curriculum and the content is really focused on at least guaranteeing an interview for, the, for that corporation versus you know the, the traditional four-year core curriculum that really may not have the intensity and, and the enhancements to get that interview yeah. in that specific industry. Fascinating. I want to come back to that. Bloomberg Savants. Good morning, everyone. David Gurr, Tom Keene in New York. Skinny repeal. That was named after me, David. Just so you know. It's your club skinny, name, right? Skinny repeal. They were a great band. Bob Nardelli, let's rip up the script and go right here. One of the most important moments for me in surveillance history was sitting on the deck at Davos, a tough chore, with a leader in medical care who one day figured out that the reason people quitted his company is they couldn't pay the rent. Literally, the percentage of people in his big, sprawling company that couldn't pay the rent was jaw-dropping. When does labor get back pricing power? Because fancy guys like you figure out the labor can't subsist on serfdom salaries, net of taxes. Are we seeing that shift now? Yeah, I think... Uh you know, I'm not. I, I certainly wouldn't suggest a mandated wage uh, environment, Tom. For sure, I think uh, you know as competition becomes more competitive for labor, uh, corporations are going to have to step up and and determine whether the cost of turnover or abandonment is less than or greater than the yeah. cost of retention. That's the point yeah. of, of inflection that we have to face. And, David, what's so important about this, it's not just about New York City where, you know, a studio apartment costs 4000 bucks a month. It, it's nationwide staff can't survive. And you, I hear this in interviews. Ask you just about the, the the promise of factory jobs here in the U.S. We had this announcement yesterday at the White House that Foxconn, the Chinese Taiwanese company, is going to open up a factory in in Wisconsin. Of course, mm -hmm. a lot of uh, incentives to make that to make that happen. You got to think a factory like that is going to rely a lot on automation. And and I wonder just what, how you begin to assess what a deal like that means uh, to the labor economy. Uh, there's promise initially, but uh, you know how how much does that meet expectations? Yeah, I, I think first of all, you know, it's a great announcement to have the repatriation of those jobs back into the U.S. market. Number one, number two, let's not lose sight of a three billion dollar incentive, and uh, also let's not lose sight of uh, where it's being placed. If you think about the speaker and the yes, governor yeah. <laughs> uh, relationship with the president, uh, it's not surprising it ended up it ended up in Wisconsin. I think one of the things that we thought would happen that with the advance of technology that new jobs would be created in providing those technologies to corporations. And I don't think we have seen that. As a matter of fact, I think it's going to get increasingly more challenging. You know, I saw some demonstrations recently on robots, yeah. they call them bots, to do accounts payable, accounts receivable, and then another bot auditing. So the financial services companies are going to lose the apprenticeship opportunity for these right. kids coming out of school, Tom. I want to, I want to come back with Bob Nardelli, David. We've got to have him back here to talk business and, and really where the nation's going and its manufacturing. Can I ask you a question that came up the other day? When you were a stud at Home Depot, did you get special lumber? selection like when you, you when you needed a two by four a Boise cascade two by four by eight feet versus stud LVL did you get a special selection because of who you were 
No, never, Tom. I mean... Uh... Oh, John Tucker, <laughs> jump in here. No, no, Did you that. hear him? First of all, let's... Bob, i got to pick through those two-by-fours. No, you can't call them out. You never can call... That's not... That's not... We always bought the highest grade, so we didn't have the lumber to call out. We, we made sure that that went to the competition, Tom. Uh, <laughs> I beg to differ. <laughs> it takes me... i got to... A ten percent success rate at finding uh, two by fours that you know. And, and well, you're, to the be guys, fair. you're the guys we didn't like because you'd have all those two by fours thrown on the floor that was, you didn't want. I was very selective and still am. <laughs> you wanted a straight two by four. <laughs> I asked for so much. Oh, We're going to come back and get straight talk at American Manufacturing with Robert Nardelli, uh, uh, formerly with uh, a small lumber company called Home Depot. Ken Langone, he got straight two by fours. He oh, just yes. Ken just went in. <laughs> <laughs> Ken just went in and started yelling and screaming. Correct. They were brought to him on a silver uh, a silver platter on a forklift truck. This is great. Bob Nardelli with us. We've had a lot of fun. Richard Clarida uh, will be along later as well from PIMCO. Really great discussions uh, this morning. Rob, Bob, Robert Nardelli with us right now, who um, I guess I guess, Bob, where I could go in about eight ways to go with you, is a president loves to go out to your Midwest Speak big, maybe it's carrier. I don't mean to pick on the carrier thing. We're going to create jobs, and then this, that, and the other happens. And guys like you say, we can't make money, so we're going to move to Mexico, whatever it is. What's the correct strategy for Washington to help guys like you create jobs in Oklahoma? Yeah. Well, I think a couple of things. Certainly the announcement uh, you know, of Foxborough coming back to Wisconsin is a big announcement in the repatriation of jobs and you know, making America great again, number one. Number two, I think uh, rolling back some of the uh, policies that have been stifling over the last eight years and some of the restrictions, uh, I think you know, this administration moving towards uh, reducing those, whether it's the CAFE standards or, you know, we see this medical tax, which I personally encountered when they put that on as part of the, the prior health care healthcare bill, actually flipped some of the companies when they started paying, you know, 25, 30% tax on medical devices. I think corporate tax rates will be a big incentive for repatriation, along with, uh, you know, bringing back reshoring uh, some of that cash that's offshore, Tom. So I think there's, you know, three or four or five things that this administration well, has talked about but needs to do to make this happen. What's the biggest subsidy you ever negotiated where you said, I'm going to go in to North Carolina and Mayor Gurr is there, mm-hmm. and you say, <laughs> I'm going to give you 42,000 jobs or whatever, mm-hmm. But I need a umpteen gazillion dollars of tax rebates. What's the biggest number you ever worked with on that? Uh, quite honestly, you know, I was fortunate to work on several of those, and it resulted in millions of dollars. I, back then, I, uh, you know, we didn't use the billion word, <laughs> three billion Fair. they got in Wisconsin, but we did get millions of dollars. It was really competitive at the state level. Uh, I know we moved. You know, the corporate headquarters from Schenectady down to Atlanta right. uh, in GE Power Systems. And, you know, we were able to go in in a very constructive way and work with the state, you know, incentive programs and redevelopment programs and break good paying jobs. And they would help with training and relocation and, and uh, you know, help acclimate people into the community. So it was, it was real partnership back then, Tom. 
How do you assess uh, when something like that works? You mentioned GE, and I think about GE moving to Boston, the incentives that were uh, involved with that. They got and Red Sox They got Red Sox That's part of the package. Yeah. But there's you know, the, the tangible benefits, but also maybe enthusiasm or excitement that, that comes with that. How do you begin just to assess uh, when a move like that is successful? Yeah, well, I, I think, first of all, uh, you know, you got to make sure that your core competency is willing to relocate. You know, we looked at moving uh, the Home Depot headquarters uh, at a period in time because we were getting tremendous incentives out of uh, Orlando mm. and uh, working with the governor, Governor Bush at the time. And, and so you got to make sure your team's willing to relocate because you don't want to have a brain drain and lose talent. you got to make sure that there's good, sustainable incentives there. Uh, that makes sense and can be justified to, uh, you know, to both the state that you're leaving and the state you're going to that enhances shareholder value. Bob Nadelli, great to speak with you. Thank you very much for joining us. Always good to talk Never to you. Never enough time. No, I know. Exactly. Well, <laughs> you, had a, you had a good uh, good chunk on TV as well, folks. You yeah, check Kim, that out. Kim Langone is on line three. He's, <laughs> he's got some two-by-fours done at NYU. <laughs> you better answer it, Tom. <laughs> oh, I do when Mr. Langone calls me Exactly. Uh, Robert Nardelli, thank you very much. I appreciate it, of course, formerly of uh, Home Depot and Chrysler. Brought to you by Bank of America, Merrill Lynch. With virtual reality, virtually everything will change. Discover opportunities in a transforming world. BofAML.com slash VR. Merrill Lynch, Pierce, Fenner & Smith, Incorporated. Joining us now is one of America's most important monetary theorists, Richard Clarida, heavily associated with dynamic stochastic general equilibrium theory and the challenges to it and where it is right now. He was at Columbia University uh, forming and founding their, driving their Columbia economics forward, which is a tough order given Mr. Stiglitz, Mr. Mm. Uh, uh, Mr. Phelps and, and the others. And now at PIMCO is, is their major global force in strategy. Uh, one quick question, because I know David's got a lot. Yeah. Richard, are we still ultra-accommodative? Is the Stanley Fisher of 18 months ago, is he still warbling ultra-accommodative? I think I'd say we're accommodative now. We've probably moved a little bit beyond ultra-accommodative. I think the Fed's own models suggest uh, that the neutral funds rate's around 2%, and we're about a percentage point below that. So the Fed, I think it's fair to say, is still removing accommodation. Uh, it's not tightening policy, uh, but not ultra-accommodative in terms of the funds rate. We've seen the guidance here of how the Fed intends to normalize, unwind its balance sheet. They say going to do it relatively soon, according to yesterday's statement. Do we have enough justification from them as to why they want to do it now? You know, I think they want to do it now just because uh, uh, they've, they've had a big balance sheet for a long time. It was an emergency measure. The emergency is uh, over. I think they started talking about shrinking the balance sheet six or seven years ago. And I think also, David, it's a good question. I think importantly, they want to get it done this year or get it started this year because we could well have a transition at the Fed. And I think they and I, and I think it's the right decision believe that this is something the Fed should get underway now so that when the next person comes in, if there is a new Fed chair, then the this process is underway. So I think it's the right call. How confident are you in the continuity? In other words, if this starts in September, starts in December, whenever it starts, yeah. uh, while Janet Yellen is still the, the, the chair of the Fed, how confident are you that whatever she puts into place is going to continue depending on who's there next? 
I believe that at least for the first year of the program that they've laid out, there will be a lot of continuity uh, because essentially they want to really wean the markets off QE. Uh, by, and they will continue, as I've said on your program before, they will continue to be buying a lot of treasuries and mortgages even after the balance sheet begins to shrink. It's sort of like the fellow who says, I want to lose weight. And so instead of having three desserts after dinner, I'm going to have two. They're still going to be buying treasuries and mortgages for the first year. Your point, however, in the second year of the program, uh, basically foresees them stepping out of buying uh, mortgages. And were that to happen, uh, it would be interesting to see how the mortgage market would react. I just would suggest, Mr. Gurra, that the three desserts, two desserts, Clarida model is my definition of skinny repeal. <laughs> yeah, very good, very good. We'll come back here in a moment, but let me ask you to look ahead to, to Jackson Hole, of course. Before the last ECB meeting, there was this uh, conference in Portugal. Uh, things were sort of thrown out of whack as a result of some of the speeches made there. What stands to change here in Jackson Hole, how important is that conference going to be this year well, ahead of the next Fed? And, 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 and David, it's always potentially important because it's the one chance that all the Fed officials are available, and they also mingle with a lot of uh, uh, reporters and on-air uh, folks. Uh, and obviously, Chair Yellen usually uh, attends. I believe she's attending uh, this uh, year uh, as well. Uh, she will be, if she does attend, she'll be giving a keynote uh, speech. But it is an opportunity in that speech uh, for her to highlight uh, and signal perhaps what the committee is going uh, to be doing. I imagine what we'll be talking about around Jackson Hole is any speculation about mm -hmm. whether or not President Trump will reappoint her or move on to another Fed chair. Are you, are you going? I'm not going to Jackson. Oh, that's no. a mistake. They should have clarity. <laughs> yeah. he, he would be rude at lunch. Draghi's going to be up there at that lunch on the lawn. I'll be in Rhode Island with my wagon family. Supper. You'd oh, very be, nice. you'd be enjoying Labor Day holiday. He'd be throwing rolls at him or something like that. So we're here with Rich Clarida of PIMCO, Columbia University, in our Bloomberg 1130 studios. And as we just heard, uh, there's some action in the Dirksen Senate office building today uh, before the Senate Banking, Housing, and Urban Affairs Committee. Randall Quarles, nominated to be vice chair after supervision, going to be testifying before that committee today, having his nomination hearing. What are you going to be listening for? What do we know about Mr. Quarles? What do you want to learn about how he thinks about regulation and, and monetary policy? Well, let me begin by saying uh, I worked very closely with Randy Quarles. We were both at the Treasury Department between 01 and 03, and our offices were next to each other. So I know him quite well. Uh, he's a remarkable, accomplished individual, obviously, uh, very successful both as a policymaker and then a successful career uh, investing at the Carlyle uh, Group. Uh, I think, uh, you know, R Randy will very much take a, what I would call a sensible uh, approach to thinking about an appropriate uh, scale of regulation. Um, I don't think he's extreme on either side on deregulation or, or re-regulation. I think in some ways he's the ideal choice to take on a role that has actually never been filled. Dodd-Frank created this vice chair for financial supervision, and President Obama never nominated anyone. So I think Randy's an ideal choice for the first uh, person in that position. Help us with the, the legacy of Dan Tarullo. He was on Bloomberg Television, Bloomberg Radio, a little earlier this week, talking with our colleague David Weston. He delivered that valedictory at the Woodrow Wilson School just before he left office about the importance yeah. of capital ratios and, and uh, of, of not repeating the mistakes of the past. 
What's his legacy going to be? And when you look at the, the role that uh, Mr. Quarles could take up here at the Fed, how much is he going to carry on what uh, Mr. Tarullo was uh, was working on while he was at the Fed? Yeah. Well, look, I uh, I think Dan Tarullo, you know, the, was was in a, in a very unique uh, role in the sense that he was in an important position at the Fed out of the crisis uh, and was really delegated that portfolio. And I think, you know, his leg- it's too soon to tell what his legacy True. is, but by all accounts, he very ably and skillfully, uh, you know, worked out uh, the necessary yeah. approach and compromises uh, coming out of the uh, crisis. I would imagine that what we'll see coming out of Fed and with uh, with Randy is more of an evolution than a, right. than a whole wholesale rewriting of of re-regulation post Dodd Frank. We would be doing a disservice to our listeners worldwide if we did not point out that one Richard Clarida is, by anybody's measure, uh, a candidate for a high position at the Federal Reserve, uh, including growing a beard and being like Ben Bernanke. Uh, But, uh, Richard, I'm not going to ask you tacky questions about the chairmanship, but I am going to ask you about the given theme from this president and from other pundits that we have low-rate Janet and low-rate Gary when we talk about Mr. Cohn and, of course, Chair um, Yellen. You and I have seen this before many times where we, we get a business enterprise theory that wants low-rate Clarida, low-rate Greenspan, on and on and on. What's the trap of that? Well, I think I think the reality is that we are in a in a low rate world, and we've called it the new neutral. So we think it's a world that when the Fed's done hiking, the funds rate's going to be somewhere between two and three percent, and not four or five percent. So regardless of who the next Fed chairman is, that's that's where we think rates are going to end up. Now, importantly, however, we're in a low rate world because productivity has been has been slow, and the economy's not been growing very rapidly. If we were to get, for example, a big tax reform or a turn in productivity. If the economy were growing faster, we would need higher rates. So you don't want low rates just to have low rates, as some might be suggesting. But so long as the economy continues on the current path, we will be in a a low-rate world, at least for the next several years, regardless of who Fed uh, chairman uh, is. You you read the Fed's assessment of the U.S. economy, and and I wonder if if you think they're missing anything. Is, Is there something the Fed doesn't get about the state of the U.S. economy today? I, th- I think that the Fed is still very reliant on their models, and their Phillips curve uh, models um, tell them that given the unemployment rate is low uh, and falling, that they would expect inflation uh, to pick up. Um, and indeed, that is that was consistent with what they said in the statement uh, yesterday. I think there's really two-way risk here, David. One is that there's something inherently wrong in the models. We were talking about it earlier in terms of pricing power of the global economy. It's harder to generate 2% inflation than perhaps the Fed thought. I think longer term, though, uh, David and Tom, there may be a risk on the other side, which is that we've had a period where inflation is low. People are very relaxed. Markets think we can never get inflation above 2 And if you look at the U.K., for example, the U.K. has gone from 1.5% inflation to 3% inflation yeah. pretty quickly. So it can turn on a dime. In the U.S., we went from 1% inflation right. to 4% inflation in in the 60s. And so I think there's risk on both sides uh, right here. I'd say that is the risk, uh, David. They had the political event of a sterling-driven Brexit moment. We have dollar weakness. What's the why of dollar weakness? And not that it's a single impulse of June 23rd, but is dollar weakness Brexit light? Like, I should say. Well, I, th- I think, no, Bre- Brexit was a discrete, unforeseen event, yep. which led to a huge move. I think about a 20 or 30 percent move in the in the pound. Uh, 
the dollar weakness, I think, is really much less uh, dramatic right now. It is reflecting the fact that, on balance, the U.S. data has been soft and inflation has been below target. And on balance, the data in the rest of the world uh, has been has been surprising on the upside. And Draghi, of course, as David mentioned, in Portugal uh, was interpreted as being somewhat hawkish. So I think these are actually relative moves within a pretty stable range uh, for the dollar uh, right uh, right now. I don't I don't see the dollar breaking out really uh, on either side uh, uh, mm. compared to what we've seen in the past. How about your forecast for for growth? How much have you reevaluated that? Yeah. Uh, how much are you paying attention to what is or isn't happening uh, in Washington vis-a-vis the the prospects yeah. for growth? Yeah, so I, I'm in the camp, David, that that thinks that unless we get really a fundamental reform of the of the tax code, uh, that uh, unfortunately we have to extrapolate the past, which is basically we're two percent. Uh, economy. We don't have a lot of increase in labor force participation. Productivity uh, has been soft, uh, to be p- polite. Um, uh, so I think Washington is, is, is key here to really fundamentally shift your view of the economy. And get, remember, we're at a late stage. We're entering now the ninth year of uh, expansion. And if this recovery continues in a year, which I think it will, then we'll be the second longest recovery in U.S. Uh, history. So this is, you know, some would say long in the tooth. And typically, you don't, economies don't pick up steam in year eight or year nine or year 10 recovery. So to really shift gears, you would need sort of a 1986 Reagan-style tax uh, uh, reform. And unfortunately, uh, because of what we're what's coming out of Washington, I'm much less optimistic we'll get that than I would have been six months ago. Does Washington have more economic determinism than it did in the past? Is it, is it more important than it, than it has been? I'm not sure about that. I think I think we're, we live in a world where where Washington is going to be important uh, in the economy, sometimes for better uh, for better or, or or worse. I think what what is perhaps a little bit different now, David, is the fact uh, that you know we really had a remarkable uh, election uh, in in November, uh, and I think um, I think that that caused many people to recalibrate their understanding of the U.S political system. I think where we're sitting here now going into August is that in some ways it looks really familiar. It's, it's tough to govern with small uh, majorities um, uh, and it's tough to reach agreement on the important uh, issues. And alas, that's really been the state of play now for a number of years. Richard Clarida, thank yeah. you so much. Why don't you bring in Mr. Tip, David? Yeah, Robert Tip joins us now, Chief Investment Strategist at uh, PGM. He's on our phone lines. Robert, great to speak with you once again. Let's start with that Fed meeting yesterday, how you processed it as a uh, as an investment strategist. What did you make of what was in the statement? Indeed, what does it tell you about the rest of the year? Sure. You know, I think that, uh, and by the way, I'm reporting from Newark, New Jersey. There you go. Oh, Celebrating go. the National Day. Yeah. Go Devils. Uh, <laughs> so the Fed, you know, I think the thing the market liked about it was that the Fed owned the inflation picture. That in hedge, they just called it as below target. And uh, so they're going to start off their, their runoff. You know, that was clearly uh, implied. Um, but there's going to be caution on, on raising rates. And when they do, it's probably not going to be, based on what we're seeing now, the result of inflation fears. And so as a result, you know, the markets which have been setting up for the auctions, uh, and that's worth coming back and, and discussing this, the size of the auctions relative to the runoff and, and so on. Uh, the market's been setting up for that. 
based on this Fed being in no rush to hike and uh, in, in no rush to hike at, at a rapid pace, that was a big relief, especially to the middle of the curve. So we saw that big relief rally. Well, let's talk about those auctions. Of course, we have this outline for how this process is intended to proceed from the Federal Reserve. Uh, when you look at the market implications of that, explain what you mean vis-a-vis the auctions. Sure. So, you know, eventually the runoff is going to start at, at $10 billion a month and work its way up to $50 billion a month. To put that into uh, the context of the market, uh, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, you have auctions of twos, fives, and sevens. Uh, you're uh, looking at $60 billion auction on the combination of Tuesday and Wednesday, and on Thursday, uh, another $28 billion, I think, are the numbers for seven years. So there's a massive amount of supply. People are trying to set up for that, uh, try to go into the auctions a little bit light so they're well positioned to, to take down the supply. You have the Fed come in in the middle of that and signal uh, a, a dovish posture that sets people scrambling uh, to, uh, to, to square up. So, you know, I think that had something to do with it, is that the markets were a little bit uh, towards the top end of their local range going into this. When, when we look at rates, when we look at fixed income, and this is just a real general, you know, investment one-on-one question, should we be investing for coupon? Should we be defensive on capital loss? Or can we actually invest for total return? Which is it forward? I think it's total return, number one, and number two, it's diversification. Uh, I mean, most people are, are still looking for rates to be on a slowly rising track. They're completely missing the picture that U.S. rates are very high relative to Europe, even higher relative to Japan. The money is coming here. Uh, this is not an inflationary world, and so people are not going to be earning the 230 on the 10-year note. They're going to be getting the 230 plus whatever active management return is out there from spread product. They're going to be getting roll down the curve, roll down the spread curve. And those returns are going to be significantly above cash over the long term in all likelihood, and they're going to diversify people's portfolios relative to the stocks and the other riskier things they have. So I think that's the thing that people have been missing is the strategic allocation, uh, even in a low and range-bound rate environment, has been a big contributor uh, to people's portfolios over the last handful of years for people that have stayed fully engaged. Robert, let me ask you, lastly, you sent along a chart here of the VIX going back to, to 2000. What are you thinking as you look at volatility where it's at today? Yeah, you know, there's a lot of discussion about how volatility is low. But I think when you have a central bank uh, like the Fed with a dual mandate uh, in a world of low inflation, when they're hiking rates, they have a very high degree of control. And that's why you see low volatility during the last rate hike cycle, 04 up through uh, 06, and in this rate hike cycle. Because if you get a little bit slower data, they can back off. You get a little bit faster data, Mm. they can ramp it up a little bit. Uh, they're running a macroprudential policy, basically, here, since there's not an inflation situation where they're right. you know, slowly letting the markets uh, appreciate well, based on fundamentals. Robert, thank you so much. Robert Tip uh, with uh, PGM this morning. Greatly appreciate Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on iTunes, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm out on Twitter at Tom Keen. David Gura is at David Gura. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide. 
on Bloomberg Radio. Brought to you by Bank of America, Merrill Lynch. With virtual reality, virtually everything will change. Discover opportunities in a transforming world. B of slash VR. Merrill Lynch, Pierce, Fenner & Smith, Incorporated.